Hello and welcome to the Michael Mama Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas. We're coming to you from Mount Soma, which is home of the Sri Sameshwara Temple in the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina. Um, <clears throat> I think before we get started with today's podcast, uh, Scotty, how you doing? Good. That's good. good. You're back from Hawaii now, back yeah. home in LA. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and you wanted to, before we get started, I wanted to have, a, I guess you had a couple of points or questions or something about the Big Bang. Yeah, yeah. No, so we were talking about how go ahead. that's kind of the falling apart, the the Big Bang. Yeah, and, and that Michio Kaku, Michio Kaku uh, quote, that physicist, uh, or that there was an interview uh, with him, right. and the interviewer brought up the idea that, you know, there universe, there are galaxies that are many galaxies now that are much older than the Big Bang Theory would allow for. And uh, how does he explain that? What does he have to say about that? He just changed the subject. <laughs> they don't know what to, you know, they don't know what to do about it, you know. Uh, all that is so clearly explained and delineated in the uh, Vedic literature, which I think I've gotten into. But the Rani Garba, the infinitely long pillar of flight, all of that, uh, Anyway, uh, really, see, the mechanics of creation has to be understood on a pretty deep level before those things can even be addressed. And how does the Haranyagarbha relate to the fact that there is no Big Bang and so there is no space-time curvature or anything? You know, all that is resolved within the absolute, you know? But you had a couple of things you wanted to say, Scotty, or questions? Well, I was just kind of curious as to you know <clears throat> what's going to be the better explanation about about if maybe you could talk about that yeah actually the better explanation was well in the vedic literature it was known you know thousands of years ago but even in uh, the ancient greeks uh, uh talked about how the universe uh goes on as a continuum to infinity there's no end to it and that's that's the current thinking you know uh, now, uh, the question can come up then, well, what about in the Vedic literature where it says it's a Haranyagarbha, you know, a cosmic egg, all of that, and uh, uh, that seems to contradict uh, what I just said, but really it doesn't because I've talked about how you've got the absolute and you've got the relative, and the problem with uh, the Big Bang Theory was that to... Um, come up with these theories mathematically the equations were such that you had to be able to divide by zero which of course you can't do and uh, uh, if you don't divide by zero then all of a sudden things like um, uh, black holes and the big bang and all that just goes goes out the window it doesn't work anymore uh, I know some people have asked well can, couldn't we just adjust the parameters of the big bang theory so that the big the universe is a little bit older you know, than we thought it was. And the problem with that is you can't you can't divide by zero squared or something. You know, there's a limit to those formulas and and uh, it's all based on dividing by zero. And if that doesn't work, there's nowhere else you can go. But now you see what 
we, let's take a look at dividing by zero a little bit, and then we come up with uh, 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 the, the Vedic explanation of the whole thing. And that is that, uh, well, it talk, talks about in the Veda, bigger than the bigger and smaller than the smallest. Well, what's smaller than the smallest? Well, the smallest in the relative is still relative, so it has some size. We talked about that electrons and like that. They're not zero dimensional. They have some size. Uh, but what is smaller than the smallest dividing by zero for the size of the electron, for example, uh, smaller than the smallest is no longer in the relative. Now we're talking about structures within the absolute, the transcendent, Chaitanya, you see. And uh, uh, so within the absolute, which is virtual from the perspective of the relative. Within the, and of course, as I've said, the relative is virtual from the perspective of the transcendent, the transcendent being the fundamental basis and the relative being what's called Maya illusion. But at any rate, within then, within the structure of the absolute, and you see, that's even misleading because how can there be a structure to no thingness? Well, there is. Uh, uh, and within that structure, that's where you get the Haranyagarbha, the uh, pillar of light that's infinite. And this, and there, so in that sense, there are worlds within the absolute. But from the perspective of the relative, the absolute is flat, no thingness. Why? No thingness, nothingness. So, <laughs> so that's just the nature of the thing. And it's, it can be difficult to wrap your head around. Uh, now, how does consciousness fit into yeah, all yeah, that? I was just, just going to go there. That um, yeah. Within the relative consciousness, our consciousness is like awareness. It's like knowledge of thingness. It's all based on relativity. But the absolute, the transcendent Chaitanya is a field of pure consciousness before it's become conscious of anything. It's the field of no thingness. It's the field of pure isness, pure nothingness from the perspective of the relative. And so, uh, and so consciousness uh, uh, is a, its very nature is in the arena of thingness. And so within the absolute, we have this self-interacting dynamic of pure consciousness, which is, in a field that's beyond things. It's a field of no thingness. But what happens then is, uh, well, we can even, so if consciousness is conscious by its nature, it become, can become conscious of itself within that self-interacting dynamic of no thingness. But when consciousness loses, um, the, the big picture of its own true nature was that nothing is really happening. Then it becomes identified with the notion of other consciousness aware of itself as something other, but now you've just entered into relativity. I'm here. I'm conscious of that over there and duality is born. And there's a process to that. So you got Rishi, David, and Chandas, the knower, the known and the process of knowing uh, and, now, and now the field of Maya, the field of illusion, the field of relativity, that's why it's well-named, you know, it's relative. There's no absolute to it, you know. 
and uh, uh, now you've got the birth of uh, uh, what we call the universe. Is, is that all making sense, Scotty? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how that that's how that whole thing works. Uh, and you can go deeply into the whole mechanic of the thing within the structure of, uh, of the absolute, within the structure of the Veda. And it's highly sophisticated knowledge, uh, ungraspable in the sense of um, accessible uh, as something you can grab onto from the perspective of relativity. So it's a field that lies beyond the grasp of even physics, because what's physics based on? Physics is based on something you can grasp, something you can see, you know? Uh, but, it, but if, and so that's the thing. If the awareness becomes free of its identity with Maya, free of limitation, free of um, preconceived notions, free of um, uh, convictions, free of beliefs, free of perspectives, then we rest into that field and the depth of our being. That's a field of pure consciousness, pure isness. That which is transcendental, that which is universal, that is the basis of everything, the basis of me, the basis of you, the basis of all of relativity, the basis of everything. It's all birthed out of that. Uh, uh, so there was there a birth or did consciousness always exist? And or when, was there an awareness or, you know what I mean, a beginning? Consciousness is eternal. Consciousness is pure isness. Right. But, you know, in, in the field of the relative, as we talked about, everything cycles. So, so uh, even in the field of relativity, um, things come and go and they transition. They transition from one yuga where the laws of nature are one way into the next yuga and the laws of nature are another way. And that whole process cycles. And then there's also a moment of, you could say, dissolution. And then they, if you will, rebirthing into relativity. But even in the, even in the sense that it can kind of be compared to like when you have a you know the old thirty three and third records and between songs, there's a period of silence, but still there's some thread there. It's not like pure no thingness, right? Does that make sense, Patty? Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, 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 and so in that sense, there's still some relativistic quality, you see, uh, if that makes sense, you know. But when the mind, see, here's the thing, when the mind becomes free of its, um, well, they talk about non-attachment. And you see, non-attachment is something so misunderstood. It's like, oh, well, I'm unattached. And so... I'm free of desire, and so therefore I don't care if I have vanilla or chocolate ice cream or you know, I'm unattached. And that's that's not what non-attachment means. I mean, you can conjure up a state like that, but it's not real non-attachment. That's a, It's a state of disconnect, lack of integration. Whereas real non-attachment means you're awake to that level at the depth of your being, which is beyond relativity, but you can still function in relativity. You can still prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla ice cream, for example, but still be living that state of non-attachment. But that is, exists in the depth of your being. And people get real confused about that. Oh, freedom from desire. I'm free from desire. 
no, you're that's that's a disconnected state. But to be awake to that level of your being that doesn't desire anything, that level of your being that doesn't desire anything. Why? Because it's already one with everything. Uh, uh, that's real. That's what non-attachment is really all about. You can still, in the relative, have your passions and everything, but be living in a state of non-attachment. Making sense, Scotty? Now, now the, the problem with that then is people say, oh, yeah, I can sense that, I can feel that, and so I must be enlightened and everything. But that's an echo of truth perceived as truth, which holds real truth at bay. And that's where people get off on all these ridiculous tangents about, you know, oh, I've been meditating five years, I'm enlightened. You know, you know it, it's, it's this, particularly in the new age where kind of it got onto Hinduism and Vedic knowledge and all that. Seems like every other person that gets in, into it after a couple of years or weeks or whatever meditating decides that they're enlightened and they're a bodhisattva and they're this great. And it just, we all sense it. We all have a sense of it. That's very different from actually embodying it fully. And you're seeing, making sense, Scotty? Did I lose you, Scott? Oh, I think I, I may have lost Scotty. I think he's just, yeah. Anyway, that's all right. But I think that's the idea. <clears throat> now, the, the title of this podcast is, you know, how to read tea leaves. And I, I, I use that in, a, in an expanded sense of what, it, what I mean by uh, reading tea leaves. Reading tea leaves is in the sense that I'm using the word, yeah, it can include, you know, looking at tea leaves, but in a, in a cup and okay, what do you see there? But it also uh, encompasses the idea of, <clears throat> of uh, seeing what is, what's going on in the world uh, for, and seeing it for what it is. And how do we do that? Well, we have to be awake to that level of our being that's beyond our preconceived notions, beyond our identities, beyond our limitations, beyond our prejudices, beyond our biases. And, and how do we do that? How do we set all that aside? Well, you don't set it aside by deciding, oh, well, okay, I'm going to get in and close my eyes and just get settled and now I'm beyond relativity and all like that. No, it's a, it's a very sublime, subtle, and highly elusive state of physiology. Uh, and that's... that's um, an elusive state. Now, there are people that can kind of go into uh, little glimpses. Sometimes the clouds can clear and then we have an insight. We see the sky as opposed to being lost and cloudy and like that. And that can happen. Uh, uh, but that's just a brief glimpse. And, that, and then it, also different levels of distortion, different astral echoes of truth. Are we reading the tea leaves? You know, are we really seeing what's going on? Or are we uh, uh, off on some astral tangent that can seem really otherworldish and and uh, psychic, if you will? But it's really it's more misleading than anything, you know. So that's just how how all that works. Um, so it's really it's about cleaning the cobwebs of your own awareness, and that can only work even in a state of an enlightened being. If a fully enlightened being is living in the midst of a, you know, of a fish pole, of a, of a fish bowl, 
they can't really see be, as far as they could if all the water in the fishbowl was clean and clear. You know, <clears throat> that's why they say that, you know, there are no Brahmarshis. There are no um, cognizers of Veda <clears throat> in uh, this age because this is the age of a cloudy fishbowl. And, and uh, uh, so even if an individual did have that kind of physiology, there'd be some degree of limitation to what they could do. I've seen some really great saints. I mean, don't get me wrong. And they're phenomenal. They're insights and things. Uh, uh, but still, there's the limitation of a cloudy fishbowl that the uh, universe, that the, our world is uh, consumed by right now. Uh, saw a nice Aristotle quote. It says, the blood of a goat will shatter a diamond. What does that mean? Well, I think it's actually going on now. If Diamond in another sense. There's a strong um, uh, kind of worldview, uh, particularly in the United States now. I mean, it's just crazy, the ideas and things that are uh, getting support and recognition. <clears throat> but the grassroots, the, the people, they're seeing beyond it. Things are changing. I mean, this nuttiness that's going on, it's going to change. And one place it really changed, you know, when they talk about the, the blood of a goat, uh, when they started picking on our children, you know, and when people started reacting to that and, you know, don't do these terrible things in what we call an educational system, which is really an indoctrination system. Don't do these things to our kids. When people started realizing that, that's the, you know, the blood of a goat, the blood of our ancestry, the blood of our family. And, uh, uh, that, that's really the grassroots uprising that's going to change things. And then there's this latest thing about the invasion of Donald Trump's uh, home in uh, Florida. Uh, it backfired. I mean, they, I think they were trying to think, oh, oh, now we can get something on Trump. And, and really what is happening now is the people are seeing that and they're saying this is wrong. You know, so there's an uprising. The whole thing is changing. Uh, <clears throat> You know, Justice Scalia, uh, of course, he's passed away now, but I saw a little brief video of him, and I just thought it was great. And he talked about, uh, uh, and I don't know enough about Scalia and all these different justices that have strong opinions about the different individuals, but nevertheless, this quote I thought was great. And he talked about the Bill of Rights. And he said, every third world country, communist Russia, USSR, whatever, they all had a Bill of Rights and they all read very similarly to our Bill of Rights. But the thing that separates the United States from a lot of the communist countries is we also have a constitution. And he, he used the word constitution uh, to correlate to like the constitution of a healthy human physiology. The Constitution of the United States gives the United States a healthy physiology, if you will, separation of powers so that one group doesn't become so powerful that it dominates the, the other uh, <clears throat> uh, branches of government. You have, you know, judicial, legislative and, uh, and uh, executive. If one of them becomes too powerful, then you get into a, this ty tyrannical situation. And he said the beauty of the United States is that with this separation of powers, uh, the Bill of Rights then has some, some substance, some meaning that can't be overridden by a lopsided, uh, tyrannical uh, 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 rule of law or a system of government, you see. 
and I thought it was beautifully uh, expressed, I thought. Uh, <clears throat> that's why this idea of messing around too much with the Constitution, we need to be careful there, you know. Uh, I also saw uh, Epictetus, I guess is how you pronounce his name. Uh, and it was a beautiful quote. He said, can, can decide to construct your character through excellent actions uh, and determine uh, to pay the price of a worthy goal. Just that, the willingness to pay the price of a worthy goal. That's something that we're seeing less and less of. I mean, to pay the price of a worthy goal. I think in the world today, a lot of, too many people are, are cowering. And now with this, this surge, 87,000 new IRS agents added to the current 75,000, and that they, one of the requirements for them is that they can bear arms and they'd be willing to use lethal force as necessary, IRS agents. And, and uh, so people are afraid. And, and by, by virtue of that, um, people are starting to second guess whether or not they're willing to pay the price of a worthy goal. And that kind of uh, intimidation leads to a tyrannical system. So, you know, let's hope that that's not uh, the direction this is going. But, I mean, if there's one thing, think about it. If there's one thing that uh, evokes terror into the masses of people, it's the idea of the IRS and auditing and the headaches it can cause. And, I mean, you've heard all the horror stories. And so the idea of unleashing that on the middle class now is what it's looking like uh, with this new bill. Uh, I don't know, boy. It, it, I, I think it's already unleashing a, a backlash, and we'll 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 see where it see where it leads. And also all the things with the FBI now. Oh my goodness! I saw a bumper sticker that made me chuckle. It said, "Defund the FBI." <laughs> uh, Anyway, uh, <clears throat> and then I saw this um, interview with Madeleine Albright, and they were talking about how with this going after Saddam Hussein and all that in Iraq with sanctions, and they were talking about how 500,000, it's hard to even repeat, 500,000 children died as, as a result of that. And they asked her, well, was that worth it? And she said, yeah. You know, she said it's, you know, tragic, but nevertheless, it was worth it. I mean, the death of five. And that's our, that's our leaders that, that think that way. I mean, I don't know. To me, it's it's horrific. Oh, another thing. <clears throat> uh, there's, a, there's a philosophy in uh, an attitude of principle in uh, economics that talks about how uh, this concept of competitive advantage, the idea is, you know, they use the word buggy whips, you know, just as an example. But if there's some other country that's more efficient and can make better buggy, buggy whips for cheaper than we can make them, then let them make them. Free trade, com comparative advantage. Uh, and it was really Ronald Reagan then uh, who thought, oh, that makes sense. That's great. And so he took down a lot of tariffs. And he was big into free trade. But the problem with that is free trade works 
if all the different participants are well intended. But now look what we've got is we've got China manufacturing 90% of our antibiotics, computer chips, this and that, what, what have you. And, uh, uh, and so now it's almost like they've got a grip on the economy of, of different countries. Uh, they're installing infrastructures of Africa, South America, and, and it's, it's almost like a vice-like grip. And so at some point, a country needs to be self-sufficient produce their own antibiotics, produce their own automobiles, you know, on and on like that. Do you know that in this new bill, I think it's something like 300, what's it, 300 billion, is it? Dollars is going to uh, batteries and battery-powered cars. The thing that really gets me about that is if you just take basic physics, basic thermodynamics, If you use gas and electric to dig up the uh, cobalt in that, that's needed, uh, the Chinese, in fact, are cornering the cobalt market, by the way, in Congo and that. But anyway, that, that, there's an inefficiency, inefficiency there. And then you build the batteries and you build the electric cars and you use gas and electric power to convert the, the gas energy into electric energy, put it in batteries so that we can power our cars. <clears throat> it's just basic thermodynamics. It says that you're going to create more pollution more because it's not 100% efficient transfer. You're going to create more pollution. And then not, not to mention when you, batteries go into the landfill, uh, solar panels, same idea, go into the landfill. And so necessarily you're not create, it's not green. It's, it's black, you know, it's, it's pollution. It's not uh, green energy. It's not making the planet more green. And it's just so basic. It's so common sense, really, if you just take a look at the thing, that it's just frightening to me that, you know, it's like people aren't, aren't even thinking about that. Uh, here's another thing, modern economic theory. You know, inflation classic understanding of inflation is increase in money supply. You print more money, you got inflation, period. That's by definition. And the secondary effect of inflation is that prices go up. But modern economic theory says, oh, no, no. Print all the money you want. That's no problem. Just the more money you print, the harder, the heavier you tax people. And, and the heavier people are taxed, uh, then you just pull the money back out. And if, and if you pull the money back out, then there's no problem. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you pull the money out and the government has money, what do you think the money's, the government's going to do? They're going to burn it? No, they're going to spend it. It goes back into the money supply and you got the mess all over again. So the whole thing, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And, and so much of uh, modern economic theory and these approaches... I mean, who in the heck is coming up with these crazy ideas, you know? Uh, anyway, uh, I think that's basically uh, my thoughts from this, this week. And uh, uh, what we need to do then, clear the cobwebs. How do you clear the cobwebs? That's what we're doing at Mount Soma when we talk about building this unified field generator. It's pure global consciousness. It's cleaning the fishbowl. It's clearing the cobwebs. That's all there is to it. 
And for your own individual self, meditation is the most powerful tool to clear the cobwebs. It's not that you don't, that you no longer have your identities, your beliefs, your convictions, your perspectives, but they don't so overwhelm the grandeur of your being, which lies deeper, that transcendental level, that source of infinite intelligence, wisdom, creativity, that birth this whole and sustains this whole universe. Okay. So anyway, uh, that's about it for this week. And uh, we'll talk with you again next week. Thanks for listening.